advice. I think kind of from my heart, it would be um, to recognize that who you were before a loved person died and for whom you're grieving now, the person that you were uh, also died. Part of you died in that. And so um, who you are going to be is kind of version two of you or version three or whatever. It's going to be a different version of you. And um, and I say this, and I don't say this because I don't have feelings. It's because <clears throat> once you distance yourself from the grief, you're in a whole new different place. Right now, if I tell you what I'm telling you now, you probably want to punch my face. I don't know, but you don't want to hear this now. Right, you're not in a place to hear it. But I'm saying it so that there's something seeded in your mind that when all this is over, there is a new you that's going to emerge, a different you, a stronger you, and a more, potentially a more compassionate you. So once all this rage, anger, all the stuff that you're going through alchemizes, it's going to create that new you. So just leave that as a seed in the back of your head and remember it. So when it happens, you'll recognize it. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. <laughs> on our show today, we have George Durgin joining us from England, helping retiring boomers find purpose George is a mindset mentor, best-selling author, international speaker, and Emmy award-winning producer. George retired after being given just six months to live. Thankfully, his diagnosis was wrong. His retirement, though, was hellish. George had money, friends, newly restored good health, and an active social life, but it wasn't enough. And so he unretired and dedicated his life to helping others avoid the same fate. George has authored 11 books, including Spirit of, Spirit of Gratitude, Crises Are Opportunities, which gained him international recognition. His latest book, Dare to Discover Your Purpose, shows baby boomers that retirement doesn't have to be a disappointment and gives them the tools, confidence, and a blueprint to make the most of their later life. A formal financial advisor, George is on a mission to help retirees create a plan for their later years, which is about much more than money. George, thank you so much for being with us today. Delights to be on your show, Jenny. Thank you. I'm <clears throat> so excited for our conversation about death, grief, and retirement, and I look forward to learning how we can use these experiences for our growth in our lives. But before we get into your story, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Um, I have a website. It's uh, georgegergian.com. That's J-E-R-J-I-A-N.com. Awesome. 
just get into it. Let's get into right. the story. What is your experience with death, such as the death of a close family members? Okay. Um, uh, up to the age of 50, I thought I was immortal. Uh, I really did. Um, you know, you go to funerals and you think, you know, you know it's going to come for you one day, but it's sort of in, in your imagination, it always feels that like it's going to be like way out there. Um, and uh, so for me, the first kind of really um, intense and powerful um, appointment with death was when in December 2003, and I remember it to this day, is the 14th of December, 2003. I woke up at five o'clock in the morning in London. And I don't normally wake up at five. I never used to wake up at five. On this particular day, I woke up at five and I went downstairs to our sitting room. And um, I would imagine that if I did wake up, I would have put the TV on or something, but I didn't. I just sat on, on my armchair and just looked at the blank wall. I guess in my mindset that um, the, on my mind screen there was something playing, but I I I was kind of in a daze. And then about thirty minutes later, I got a, I got a phone call at five thirty in the morning, and I thought to myself, um, it must be my dad because he he was not well. He had Alzheimer's for ten years, and we were expecting him to go any time. So I thought that was my that was my brother Jack calling me to tell me that um, my dad had passed away. So when I picked up the phone, it was Jack, and I thought, uh "Oh, it's happening." Um, and I said, "Is it Dad?" And he goes, "No, it's Simon, our brother." And I go, well, "What about him?" He goes, "Apparently, he had a heart attack and died." I go, "Holy shit!" yeah um and he's my younger brother and he was 47 when he died and he just happened to have died out in the sudan in africa um he, he was living in toronto for the past 30 years and so now we were thinking how do we get his body out of sudan back to his home in canada um so i had to reach out to friends um who knew people in the british embassy in khartoum and uh, they got him out um because in the sudan in africa it's i mean it's a muslim country they bury their dead on the same day they don't have refrigeration or any of that stuff and so it was a, a real job to get him out in a steel coffin given by the british embassy and we shipped it out on two planes via Frankfurt to Toronto. And we, I I went with my younger daughter um, and I flew over from London to Toronto to, um, to join his family. Um, <clears throat> and it was really bizarre because I took it upon me to write the eulogy, right? And mm -hmm. I was on in the plane and I had my younger daughter who was like 15, um, my other daughter, my second daughter, my younger daughter was too young to fly. She had school and stuff. So I, I, my wife didn't go. So I went with my elder daughter and in the plane, um, I was just totally unable to help myself. I was just 
weeping. Mm-hmm. Like it's a seven hour flight. <laughs> it was like nonstop. I didn't know I had water, enough water in my, <laughs> in my, in my tear ducts to, to bring this stuff out. And I've never wept like that in my life. It was just, and it was, it wasn't like an effort. It was effortless. It was just, just rolling down. And even my daughter got concerned. She said, Dad, are you okay? I go, yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the more I wrote in the eulogy, the more the stuff was coming out. So that was the first part that was like, um, I didn't know the depths of feelings that were, were coming out. And it was alien. It was, um, it was bizarre. And, um, and the other thing that's interesting is that I didn't really get on with my sister-in-law, my wife's widow, mm. which didn't help because I don't think she liked me either. So in the time of grieving, emotions run quite high, <laughs> to say the least, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had a, a, another brother of mine, Chris, who lived down in Virginia, uh, flying to Toronto to, to meet us. And we stayed in the same hotel, um, my brother and I, Chris and I. And there wasn't, you know, we were there for about uh, just over a week. And so we were, you know, every night to release the tension, we would share a bottle of red wine just to kind of put us to sleep, mm. um, to release the tension. Um, it helped, but I don't know how much it helped. But anyway, um, the long and short of it is that was the, my brother passed away on the 14th. By the time we got to Toronto, it was the 16th of December. And whilst we're there uh, preparing for Simon's funeral, um, we get news from London that my father just passed away. Oh, no. Um, and the, the, the weird thing was that... Um, I, I'm sure that even though he had Alzheimer's, um, early in the morning, they after you know eight, eight hours sleep, anybody with Alzheimer's has that window of clarity for a couple of hours, and then it kind of shuts down again. And when we heard of Simon's death, my brother Jack and I went to see my mother to tell her the news. So it was like six o'clock by the time we got to her. And we got we, we got to her and the room that she was in when we, we were talking to her was next to my father's room where he was. And he must have heard. And I suspect he gave up his ghost on the back of that. He thought, you know, that's it. I, I'm out. I'm checking out. Yeah. I'm convinced there's sort of that kind of stuff that goes on that, you know, we don't we don't in our sort of waking world we don't see right. we don't notice but you know uh, he had two years to check out why check out <laughs> so close to simon's death uh-huh. i think simon's death tipped him over anyway um and if not it's a great story <laughs> why let the facts get involved? yeah i mean uh, it yeah. is what it is yeah, yeah. um so on hearing about dad's death, it kind of like threw us into another spin, uh-huh. right? Um, and this is all like, this is 14th of December, 18th of December, right? And when we finish in Toronto, we're going back to London 
to a gloomy Christmas and New Year, right? right? And we've got to bury my dad before the New Year's out. So, um, I mean, between getting all the paperwork done, getting all the, you know, and trying to deal with one's emotions, right? You're almost um, going through the, going through the, um, how can I explain this? Going through the motions of doing all the stuff you're supposed to do while trying to, um, trying to understand your feelings. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, a little bit of hostility, a little bit of this and that, you know, trying not to overreact, trying to stay, try and stay cool. Um, and then afterwards, when you're on your own, you're sort of like punching the walls. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you, you need to release it. But um, uh, what I know is that um, there's a lot of stuff that came on the back of uh, grieving, on the back of Simon's and my father's death, but particularly for Simon, because for my father, he was in his 80s, he'd lived his life. You know, his death was a kind of a release in a way. Mm -hmm. But Simon's was a shock because he was younger than me. And for him to have um, uh, died before me was like, whoa. Yeah. Suddenly time is a precious commodity, right? But also because of the familial hostilities, you know, uh, sister-in-law, um, uh, we, we tried to help her, but, you know, there was kind of hostility. And so we thought, you know what, we better back off. Um, and so trying to deal with those emotions as well as the, you know, the, the loss of your brother. Um, and then, you know, the feelings of the, the normal feelings of, well, who's to blame for this? Yeah. You know, you look for somebody to blame because that makes you, you think it's going to make you feel better. But it really doesn't, you know, and you know it's not going to. Yeah. But emotions don't have logic. <laughs> yeah. Emotions do not have logic. They exist. They are what they are. And um, and somebody's going to get smacked. Um, but nobody can smack you as you can smack yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that again. Nobody smacks you like you can smack yourself. And for me, that smacking was, and I'm being very sort of um, uh, genuine, open and honest about this. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, and, and this does happen in grief, uh, in time of grief, is that relationships with that already broken break even more and break completely. Mm-hmm. And how you deal with that um, is, is, is a very personal journey. In my particular case, um, I felt an obligation to look after my nephews who were in their teens. They just felt you know, my brother's kids, right? I want to uh -huh. be there for them. Yeah, yeah. But the mother was very toxic for me. Mm. And I was in this really difficult place of um, how do I deal with somebody that I do not get on with, right? There's no trust whatsoever on either side. 
and it's a bridge too far right i've got my own family across the pond in england mm-hmm. you know they're in canada um how am i supposed to you know and they weren't financially um uh, uh, they weren't financially poor you know there was life insurance and all that stuff which i helped to process and so everything was fine financially this was emotional yeah and on the emotional topic um by by the following year 2005 i started developing a back back pain because i was dealing with two contradictory emotions that i could not bring together one was um i want to be there for my brother's kids right emotionally not just for them, but for me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I needed to have that thing. I'm not doing it for altruistic reasons. I'm doing it for myself. Yeah. So that's the one. And on the other side is I can deal with the um, uh, with the trauma uh, and the the drama of dealing with their mother. I mean, yeah. everything was a drama, and it was um, manipulative, pressing buttons, and all that stuff. And I didn't, I couldn't deal with it. Uh-huh. So I had to speak to people I knew, and they said, you have to cut. They don't need you. Mm. And that was very hard for me to do. Yeah. And I did cut, but I cut intellectually. Emotionally, I was struggling. And that emotional struggle um, manifested itself in my body. Mm-hmm. So finally, I was diagnosed with a bone tumor. Now, the, the, the doctors, the oncologists would say, no, it's purely random. Uh, there's no connection. To it. And I frankly don't believe that. I'm yeah. a big believer in cause and effect. I do not believe things happen for random reasons. Everything is connected in life. Everything has a cause and effect. And I'm convinced that the uh, cause of my bone tumor that was a manifestation of my unresolved emotional issues. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and uh, in the work I, I do as a mindset mentor, I, I, it, that's been proven to me over and over again. You know, every illness has a cause. It comes from, and it's always in here. Yeah. It always starts from how you think and what you think. And so I know um, at, a, at, a, at a, almost a cellular level, that my bone tumor was a result of these unresolved uh, grief issues. Uh-huh. So, you know, so in sum, um, the emotions unleashed in grief can have um, good results and bad results, depending sure. on how you, how you, uh, how you face them and how you resolve them. Now, I was in uncharted territory because I didn't know anything about this. Mm-hmm. On the back of this, of course, I ended up doing four years of therapy to understand myself, to understand the challenges that I had, how I resolved them and why I behaved in the way I did. Yeah. And so this was not to assign blame on anybody, but it's to try and understand myself in relation to other people. Mm-hmm. so um grief is um is not just a curse it's also a blessing so that's my personal journey with 
I'm sorry? Say more about that. Grief is not just a curse, it's a blessing. <clears throat> well, it's a curse because obviously um, when somebody close to you dies, it's it totally shakes the ground on which you exist. Uh-huh. And, and in a sense, um, a part of you dies. Yeah. You know, it, it, and um, and so in a sense, that's a curse because while you're in those emotions, you see only the bad side because you you are you're being tossed around in the ocean in an ocean of motion of uh, notion of emotion, mm-hmm. if you like, right? Yeah. You have no control. It's white water rafting. You're being thrown and tossed. You don't know what's happening. You're not in control. Right. It's frightening, terrifying place to be. But the blessing is what comes afterwards. Once you're on dry land, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, that can be 18 months after the fact. I, it's not like a month or two later. We're talking about there's going to be some some significant distance between the event and the after period. Yeah. And the blessing is that, that is that there's a new version of you that emerges. There's um there's a part of you I think that has a new understanding about life and who you are and what you're doing. And that is the blessing. That's amazing. Um I as a grief coach, that's what I lean into with everybody that I work with. Um is Yes, you have to experience the grief. And yes, it's painful. And yes, it's hellish. And there's also growth on the other side. Yeah. So thank you so much yeah. for pointing that out and and sharing that. Um, so you've talked about your experience with Simon and your father's deaths. You've also had your own rendezvous with death. Tell us more about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was... Um, if Simon and my father's death was a double whammy, this one was a triple whammy. <clears throat> mm. And um, and again, you know, um, it was a blessing in disguise like all these bad things that happen to you, uh, you know, it's all about perception. It's how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, But while you're in it, of course, you can't see that. You just have to believe that there is going to be that at the other, at the end of the tunnel. But for me, it was in January, 2007, um, there were three storms, unrelated storms coming together. One was um, we were moving homes. Mm-hmm. We were downsizing. Um, and then my wife heard that her father had a stroke. And so we went to see him. And a week later, he he died. So it was uh, about, you know, funeral, um, estate, you know, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and in between um, his death and, you know, um, looking after his um, will and estate, um this is all in the month of january um i had a an appointment with the um at a clinic to um to have a colonoscopy 
So I go in for an MRI and the nurse comes out and says, um, are you here for that thing on your pelvis? I go, what? I go, I don't think so. No, I'm here for a colonoscopy. Oh, she says, okay, don't worry. And I thought, don't worry. Uh... Yeah. Anyway, um, of course, the doctor later comes back and says, um, we've just made an appointment with an oncologist because we've seen something on your pelvis that doesn't look good and you need to see someone. So the next day I had to go in and see the oncologist. Um, and I went in with my wife and my brother, Jack, who's a, who's a doctor. And um, the oncologist um, said that there was a growth the size of a large eggplant. If you can just imagine sitting on my pelvis. And he said, um, it's a bone tumor. And he said that in 98% of cases, 98% of cases, uh, bone tumor is a secondary cancer, which means it's spread throughout your body. So we've got to do tests to, to confirm what we think it is. So for three weeks, I went in and out for tests. I mean, you can't imagine what kind of tests. I'm, I'm not going to go into this today, but I mean, I'll just tell you one. They had a, one was a syringe, which is like a foot long syringe right with a needle that long and it was a thick needle which they had to put through my back into this bone tumor which is the size of an eggplant because the bone tumor had a bone covering around it right they couldn't get the needle in oh wow so the 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 doctor had to get a little hammer to hammer the <laughs> yeah anyway yeah right exactly and so they had to pull out material inside the bone tumor to see if it was you know they thought it was cancerous right uh, so they had to do all kinds of tests uh, over three weeks and then after three weeks they called me in but in those three weeks i had to kind of wake up and first we had to do packing because we were moving homes yeah so you can imagine right we're both thinking, this is it, time's up. And so we're packing to move to an apartment. It's like, oh, anyway. It's probably just as well we were busy because I, you know, I didn't have time to process and think. Uh -huh. um, but what I did do is uh, looking out, um, we live near the river. So I kept looking out in the morning as the sunrise over the river, thinking, how many of those am I going to see? Mm. right you suddenly realize sunrises are beautiful yeah but how many more am i going to see so you can see my mindset shifted at that point and i realized that all the things that i thought were important were not there were other things that were important that i wasn't even aware of mm -hmm. one of those was time and the other for me was my two daughters who were teenagers at the time yeah. and um people have asked me well were, were you not afraid and to be honest with you i i didn't feel any sense of fear of death I, I kind of accepted it but what was 
upsetting for me, I think, causing me angst was that I wasn't going to be around for my two daughters. Mm-hmm. That was that was hard. But um, yes, I surprised myself because I thought that, you know, facing death, um, um, I thought I would be shit scared. Yeah. To be honest, I really did. I thought I, I would be very scared. Uh-huh. Um, I thought fear would, um, you, you read about other people dying and you think, you know, they're facing death and they think, oh, geez, you know, I don't want to die. Get me out of here. I don't want to die. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I didn't have that which I found very strange. Yeah. So I don't know whether I was completely stunned, <laughs> but for three weeks, no, I don't think so. Um, no, I just generally um, found that very surprising. But I, I kind of put it down to, if you're doing, um, if you've done a lot of stuff that you've always wanted to do, you're less likely to be. I think it's if you suddenly become aware of death and you haven't lived your life, Mm-hmm. I can see why you would be afraid. But anyway, um, yeah, that's my speculation. Yeah. But to come back to the story, um, three weeks up, we're up, went to see the oncologist. He said to me, I've got some good news and bad news. The good news is the death, your death sentence is, is commuted. Your bone tumor, you're in the 2% club. Your bone tumor is benign. It's aggressive, but it's benign. It's not cancerous. So I was in that 2% club. And in a sense, I kind of said to myself, that's it. From that day onwards, I was living on bonus time. Uh Uh-huh. Right? This is pure bonus. Yeah. Right? This is the Marcus Aurelius's quote, right? And he says, if you want to live life well, think that you've died today. So any day going forward, right? You're on bonus time. Uh-huh. What are you going to do? What are you? Gonna, how are you going to use your life in a in a way that's really going to be expansive and enjoyable and meaningful? Mm-hmm. So um, in my case, it was. Um, so he said to me, uh, the, "That was the good news. The bad news," he said, "is that the the tumor is large. It's aggressive." And we're going to have to uh, operate. So there was two operations. One was to close the arteries going into that tumor so that there's not a bloodbath when they remove it. Oh, yeah. So that's one operation, right? And they had to give me uh, morphine. So I was kind of like, ooh, all over the place. (laughs) Uh And then the second operation was uh, a week later was to remove it. And so the surgeon said to me that he was going to give me a Mercedes-Benz cut because I'm worth it, he said. I said, I think you're mixing metaphors, advertising metaphors here. <laughs> uh, Mercedes-Benz with Estee Lauder, or is it uh, L'Oreal? I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, so he was going to, he, he cut me um, down my leg as well, to my back and to the front. So I had this kind of like a star cut, right? The Mercedes Benz um, uh-huh. thing. And he said, we'll also have to give you a hip uh, replacement as well. And I went, oh my God. And luckily when uh-huh. they opened it up, my hip was fine. So they didn't touch that, oh, but they already cut me. So I've got a wonderful scar that looks like I'm, I'm a Vietnam vet, but no, um, you know, it is what it is, right? Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, um, 
so that but then I had to learn to walk again over six months because you know they put metal and uh, bone cement uh, where the bone tumor had eaten away my pelvis so I had to learn to walk again um you know six months which was great because I studied philosophy in that time and did my physio um yeah it was it was a blessing in disguise because yeah. kind of my life shifted from that point on and so I was I've been on, on a kind of a journey of self-discovery a journey of um learning about uh, myself learning about my, our minds and how it works and learning that retirement is not a good place to be <laughs> and so yeah so there's there's a lot more to to that statement that retirement is not where we want to be no um, it's not <laughs> there's a lot um, of people who retire so explain explain what you mean by <laughs> retirement is not where we want to be well i was in a very difficult place um i was uh, involved in funding a litigation i'm not going to go into that but i just want to tell you it was like a sort of damocles on my head uh for many years and from 2007 until 2016 i was able to do it but it started to um affect me and because that's why I wasn't enjoying my retirement. You know, I had this oh, okay. litigation going on. I was filling time, doing things to, you know, fill time. It was like semi-retirement, but a very miserable semi-retirement. And I realized, you know what? Even if this litigation issue goes and I retire, I don't want to be there. It's, it's not a life. Mm -hmm. So I went on a 30-day spiritual retreat. It's a silent retreat. Nice. And in that silence, and I mean silence, you're right? There's no no phones, no internet, no emails, nothing. Yeah. I just had a spiritual director for 30 minutes a day, first 15 minutes to tell her about what I did the day before. And the next 15 minutes was instructions on what I'm supposed to do the next day right. or that specific day. And so, you know, I'd go for, this was up in North Wales, uh, in beautiful countryside near Snowdonia. And I would walk for two, three hours a day. You know, lots of meditation, lots of time to, I did an audit on my life in, you know, the houses that I'd lived in, um, looked at the good days that I had and the not so good days. And I ended up, I'm a writer, so I write everything and ended up writing the book Spirit of Gratitude, Crises or Opportunities, which are 12 stories that I got from that. And if you like, they were kind of you hang the stories on lessons learned. OK, so people, you know. So anyway, um, for me, going through that um, gave me the answers I wanted in what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So. Um, and, and that led me to realizing that all the stuff I'd been doing up to now was not really what I wanted to do. I was involved in real estate, commercial real estate in the US. Um, I was involved in um, uh, marketing. I was involved in a number of things and I didn't want to do those anymore. I wanted to focus on doing something new. And 
learning about our minds and how our minds work. And I studied under Bob Proctor, um, who was the success coach and the Canadian success coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, his, his thing was all about mindset. And so I learned about mindset. And then I realized that I have to, the people I want to serve are people who are retiring. And I studied retirement. I, I did surveys of over 21,000 people in the English-speaking world, aged between 55 and 75, to find out what they think about retirement, what their single biggest challenge in retirement is. And it's always about health, money, or purpose. Mm-hmm. Combination of those three. Um, and in a sense, what we don't realize is that retirement is not what we've been sold. And with prolonged life, with the sort of with us living longer, um, with the vast majority of us living up to the age of 90 and beyond. Uh, given the paradox, of course, that any one of us might not make it till the end of the day, right? That's the, mm-hmm. the paradox. But yeah. statistically, most of us are likely to live to 90 and beyond. None of us, in fact, 98% of the population does not have the financial wherewithal to retire. So that's the first thing. But it's not even the most important thing. It's the least important thing. And yet for most people, when they think of retirement, they think of how much am I saving for my retirement? It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That boat is going down. (laughs) Rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, it is a waste of time, right? You're deluding yourself. So, um, but more importantly, people don't realize that it's a rite of passage. Just like adolescence, right? When your adolescence ends and you go into the workforce to work, the life you had as an adolescent is over. Who you were as, as, as an adolescent dies. A new you emerges. And it's the same at the end of our working life. Now, people will say to me, yes, but if I'm self-employed, it's different. Marginally. Only marginally different from those who are employed. But let's just think about the employed individuals, right? They reach the end of their career, their working life. And now they go into retirement. They have no idea they're going into a different land, right? It's no country for old people is what I'd say. And the reason is that it's not about health. It's not about money. It's not about purpose. It's about identity. Mm. The first casualty in retirement is identity. Who are you now, right? Now, we know when you were an adolescent and you became an adult, there was a rite of passage, it's a transition, you know who you are becoming now. But when you reach retirement, you're holding on to who you were. And you think it's just a linear journey. Yeah. Right? But it's not. It's a whole different life now. And you need to, and nobody's going to tell you who to be. You have to create your own reality of who you are, who your identity is, who you want to be and you have agency here to make yourself who you want to be Uh right in a in a constructive way right and and then create a purpose and 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 discover who you like to serve right 
This is where the Japanese ikigai comes in beautifully. Um, so retirement is a form of death and people grieve their previous identity. They grieve their previous work. They grieve their previous life. Yes. Because it's a death. And it's for, and the more successful somebody is, the worse the grieving, because the worse the loss of who they were. And the new person that you emerge, right? It, now, this should be a blessing. But people don't see it as a blessing. Right. Right? And so there is a grieving process that goes here that's really not addressed um, and I like to to kind of um, describe the change that happens here um, is like a caterpillar going into a cocoon, emerging as a butterfly. Mm -hmm. So when you stop your work, you know, you're going through a transformation and transformations are not easy, as you know, as a, a, a grief coach, transformations are hard, yeah. but actually they're also necessary. They're a necessary hardship to go through because you're changing, right? I mean, can you imagine the caterpillar is being broken down into caterpillar juice and then having to reformat new muscles and, you know, stuff emerges as a butterfly? I mean, it's excruciatingly painful, obviously, yeah, yeah. right? You, you just need a bit of imagination to see that. So why do we think that we are exempt from what nature goes through when it transforms? So Retirement is um, um, is also an opportunity to rediscover who uh -huh. you are, to give birth to any dreams that you had when you were younger that you never had the chance to implement. Um, and you just don't want to be asking those questions on your deathbed. Yeah, You want to be doing them now. so important um to ask those ask yourself those hard questions and to to acknowledge that yeah life is excruciating excruciatingly painful sometimes and that transformation process is not easy no um <clears throat> and that's one thing that i love about grief even though people think that I'm such a weirdo like why how can you be happy about grief like how how can be grief be a good thing grief sucks um but it's that transformational process it's that that version 2.0 or 3.0 that comes out the other side it's that that opportunity to start all over again and create what you want to create because you can't go back to way, the way things were. That's not possible. So here's the situation that you have now. What are you going to do with it going forward? Absolutely. What are you going to make of it? And how many people, you know, go kicking and screaming to want to go back to the way it was, mm -hmm. even if they weren't happy. It's a yeah. bizarre it's a it's weird how we are so fearful of change we're so fearful of the new and you know 
And instead of being fear, if we were excited, it would just change the way we look at something, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. But, you know, grief is no different to um, the, the whole idea of death. I think it was Marcus Aurelius who said about um, uh, make death your friend or words to that effect. Because, uh-huh. um, you know, we tend to live in a society that um, likes to airbrush death. Right. Even even if you go to nursing homes, very few people in the West actually see body dead bodies. Right. You know, uh, you kind of have to go to the Middle East to see dead bodies. Um, nobody has any sense of any impending death in one's life, and so you know, it's kind of everything's airbrushed out. It's sanitized, mm-hmm. and in a sense, we're kind of living like gods. And I remember the story in the film Troy when Brad Pitt is, um, uh, as Achilles has killed off all the um, uh, the priests and the Vestal Virgins in uh, Apollo's temple. Um, one of the Vestal Virgins who survives turns around and says to him, the gods will punish you for this. And Achilles turns around and says, the gods are envious of us because we're mortals. We live between life and death. And there's all that excitement between that life and death. And they live very boring lives because every day is the same for them. It's eternal. Uh... And so we in the West live in that sort of um, sense of, you know, uh, death is alien. You know, so we don't we don't face death. So we're actually not living. Is you only really live when you have death in the forefront of your mind. And death is actually then a friend. And I think it was the Benedictine monks that would uh, would be told to uh, keep death at the forefront of your mind. And that way you can make each day a lifetime. I love that. Um... That's one of the one of the perks of working in the the grief field that I never expected that I would have is is that like I I still do have that sense of immortality ish like invincibility and death is far away but I I also have that sense of no death is here death is with us all the time and it's everywhere it's in nature it's it can happen at at a moment's notice so it's it's interesting to to be able to to see death as a friend and to know that it's it's always with us and life is always changing and i'm still human i'm still i still have that sense of I'm not going to die. So it's a weird, it's a weird juxtaposition of, of balance. Oh, for sure. I mean, you, it's very difficult to think of death all the time. I mean, it's kind of, we're not, we're not made that way. 
-hmm. and we get involved in things and we get engaged in things and so the idea of death just floats away um it's just that the end of the day when you are sitting just before you go to bed i mean i do this as an exercise you know um i bring it all back into perspective right i had a great day today or had a bad day but you know what it wasn't that bad um you know i learned something Uh um and and you kind of are grateful for the day you had um and i can that's how i bring it in because i don't know if i'm going to wake up tomorrow morning right? right um you just don't know and it's a great way of um bookending a day as as a lifetime right each day is a lifetime think of how much you can extract nectar juice out of life when you think that way but with all the stimulation that we get from social media and everything else you you do kind of you get into this you get into the wheel of life and you you think you know you're back to your immortal immortal state again yeah. or your fictitious immortal state yeah but in a sense we are immortal are we not our body dies <clears throat> but we are immortal mm-hmm. you know um energy i think it was einstein said energy cannot be created or destroyed right it can only be transformed and so we are energy when our body dies our energy is transformed in, uh, into something else elsewhere you know it's cause and effect again whether you believe or don't believe it transformation happens yeah and so in a sense the part of us that's immortal um is also there yes um and our like our our bodies regardless of how they're processed or what happens to them, they can become part of the ne- like part of the earth. But it's recycled, isn't it? It like is. Like everything else in nature. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And the, our memories, our legacies, our influence on others is kind of immortal too. Because one, like the the influence of other other people's lives in my life, that's never gonna die. I'm always gonna remember how people have supported and helped me and 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 the lessons they've taught me. So that lives on in me, even though they're dead. And then I well, carry I, those I, on yeah. to others. And it's interesting that if you break all that down, it all comes down to love, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the people who loved you and supported you. And then the people that you loved and supported, it's that that lives on. Mm-hmm. And so, I can also know. go the other way too, of like trauma and abuse, that oh, can God. be perpetuated, perpetuated as well. So it's, I I think the influence that we have on others, whether it's based in love or whether it's based in fear, fear or not so much love or like I quote negative. Um, knowing that 
that neg negativity or that hurt may stem from their hurt and their predecessors hurt um <clears throat> so holding holding that negative term very very loosely um but either way that they're both perpetuated yes and they yeah, can both make sense that makes sense yeah I think it's also what we do with it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Just because you've inherited that pain from somebody else, we all have a choice of what we do with that. Exactly. We can say, well, I got that, uh, that, that pain I have, I'm going to pass it on. Mm -hmm. Or I choose to extinguish that pain with love. Yeah. Easier said than done. I know, I know. But exactly. it's choices, isn't it? It's choices we make. And they're painful choices. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, um, we think that by extinguishing that pain that others have given us, we're losing out. Because we're not passing it on. But actually what we're doing it is we're taking the pain that somebody else would have carried and extinguished it. So in a sense, it's kind of a double win because you've killed it and you haven't passed it on. Yeah. Just the thought <laughs> that came to mind. It reminds me of the transformation that we've been talking about, the metamorphosis. Yeah. Like with yes. grief, it's it's that changing that that caterpillar going through that pain and turning it into a butterfly. Yeah. And it's it's yes. up to us. It really is like Yes, things happen. Yes, life is painful. Yes, life sucks sometimes. And what do we do with it? Yeah, very much so. It's um, I think it's really interesting that um, that this the change that you you talk about when we when we make that decision to not to pass that pain down. Um, nobody's going to applaud us. Nobody's going to validate us. And we are brought up needing that validation. But you're doing this for yourself and for somebody else, and you're not passing it down. And the validation is going to come from no one except you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's taking power. But how do you tell people this? You can only do it one-to-one. -one. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's, 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 it's a deep topic. And I don't, um, I kind of wonder how do you, how do you teach this? How do you explain this to people? I don't know if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. It's it's definitely interesting. Um, I was talking with a friend uh, probably yesterday about knowing healers and working with healers is not the same as helping somebody heal. 
you can have all of the resources in the world, but you can't force healing on somebody else. Yeah. You have to be ready. They have to, they have to accept it. They have to be seeking for it for themselves. Um, So that's probably the first, the first step is, is this person ready to receive it, ready to do the work? When ready the student to trust. is a teacher, when the student is ready, the, the, the master will appear. Mm-hmm. Um, you're absolutely right. People, you can't, you definitely can't force this on people. But I wonder if you speak about this and educate people, whether when the time comes, it'll, it's a, it's a seed that will germinate on its own. Mm-hmm. They, will, they will see it for what it is and then seek um, help at that point. Yeah. And that's prime. That's one of the main reasons I do what I do, is for education purposes. That to like scatter the world with seeds, and and when people are ready to receive them, when they're ready for germination, when they're ready to sprout and take life, they're there. Right. And not of not all of the seeds will sprout. Exactly. And that's yeah. that's okay too. Sure. But those like you said, when the student is ready, the master will be there. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Um Is there, I'm I'm just kind of debating, do we want to delve into another topic or do we want to close out? Um, I think as a summary, what's been the most surprising thing you've learned from your grief experiences and experiences with death? Um, the most surprising thing for me, I think, was the depth and width of emotion and amplitude of emotion that I felt. I didn't think I, I didn't think these kind of emotions existed within me. And when they surfaced, I was kind of shocked um, at why I was feeling these feelings. Um, you have to remember, I used to be a control freak. <laughs> and so <laughs> when when you're a control freak and emotions uh, surge through you, and particularly new emotions that you've not felt, um, yeah. it's a bit of a shock. Um, it's a bit of a shock because um, I had... Th- th- this is the, the previous version of me would was um as i said was a bit of a control freak a bit of um um a sanctimonious uh type of guy you know uh, as somebody who i was always right i mean i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna tell you up front i was always right right and i could persuade myself of anything right i mean that was the previous version of me and there's obviously a little remnants of that left still. You know, you can't 
changed completely. But um, that sanctimonious part of me um, did not appreciate these ugly emotions surfacing. Uh-huh. That's the kind of stuff other people have, not yeah. me. Yeah. Not me. I don't do that stuff. Right? And it's realizing, oh, my God, um, I'm just like everybody else. That's horrible. I thought I was exceptional. Uh-huh. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what yeah. I'm saying? It's, it's, it's these feelings, these what I, at the time, construed as ugly feelings, right? Um, that's the kind of feelings other people have. I do not have these feelings. And to see them surface, and not just surface, but surge through you, was like, oh my God, this means I'm like everybody else. This means there's a dark side to me that I've not wanted to face or explore. And later to find out, of course, that all the beauty is in that darkness it's about mining it it's about as Carl Jung would say shedding light on the darkness suddenly Mm -hmm. opens up a whole new world of opportunity and beauty um and and joy and so yeah that was the surprise for me that um you know the little world that I was the emperor of had to break down for me to realize that there's a whole new universe um, that I could be part of. I don't know. I think I've probably embellished it, but you get my my drift. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I love the quote. <clears throat> um, like several people have have referenced it, but quote by Emerson when it's darkest you can see the stars yeah so very true I love Emerson yeah very true amazing 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 I love all the nuggets that we've shared today um is there anything else you'd like to share in a little bit I think we're bordering on oversharing now um (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think I've said everything I wanted to say. Um, uh, what else is there? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I awesome. think so. Wonderful. So for our listeners who would like to learn more about you and your work, tell us again where they can find you. Um, you can find me on um, on my website, georgegergian.com. That's J for Juliet, Echo, Romeo, Juliet, India, Alpha, November. GeorgeGeorgian.com. So cool. So if you're looking for retirement or unretiring or finding a new life after retiring, check out George's website. Um, That's all the time we have for today. George, I've really enjoyed our time together and have learned a lot from you and your journey. Thank you so much for letting us come on this journey with you. Thank you for having me, Jenny. Appreciate it. It's been another amazing conversation here on Share Your Story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. Thank you listeners for tuning in and receiving these stories. 
If you appreciated this episode, remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on special subscription-only content. If you are struggling with grief and would like to make it more manageable, schedule a call through my website, grievingcoach.com, and I will give you one tool that you can implement today. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters. So share your story.